There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, we are sitting down with Emily Bodichon, um, and uh, I'm uh, I'm really excited to to talk to you today, Emily, about the work that you do with Moms Stop the Harm. But I'm I've I've been racking my brain um, over the last like couple of days trying to remember how we got put onto uh, Moms Stop the Harm. It was it came up in a conversation that we had recently with a guest, mm-hmm. and uh, they were the ones that kind of opened us up to the work that you guys do, and. Um, and so that leads us here, but I, I, re- I just, it, I, I can't for the life of me remember who it was. Naomi sounds a little bit too recent. It, yes, to yeah, I agree. Yeah, we it. just spoke with uh, <laughs> with our friend Naomi, who works at uh, uh, Green, uh, not Green Space, Greenstone, 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 yes, yeah, an addictions clinic in uh, Ontario. Um, so kind of a similar, similar, um, similar avenue where we're going here. But Emily, I'll let you take the. Uh, the mic here and just introduce yourself to our listeners. Give us a little bit of insight into who you are and uh, what is Moms Stop the Harm? Sure. So um, Moms Stop the Harm is, uh, we're a network of Canadian families um, with, who are affected by uh, substance use. Mm -hmm. So it it was started in 2015 um, by a group of moms who had lost their children to um, accidental drug poisoning. And, you know, they were really frustrated with um, the drug policies and um, the criminalization of, of drug use. And um, they started uh, they started the group to advocate for change. Um, and it's really grown from there. We have um, thirty five hundred members across the country. Oh, wow. And we're really strong advocates. And I think actually. Um, I listened to some of your podcasts and I think it was Carolyn Bennett who mentioned us. You know, yes. what's so funny is I Taylor just, literally <laughs> just put it in the show notes here while we were speaking and he goes, maybe Carolyn Bennett. <laughs> like, like, like two seconds before you said that. Um, yeah. Carolyn. You know what? I, I, this is um, since we spoke with Carolyn, uh, we've had, we've, we've had a few conversations that um, sort of revolve around the subject matter that we spoke to Carolyn about. Um, and, uh, with those conversations that we've had, I've always been curious to ask our guest who has listened to that episode, what their thoughts were, um, about the conversation that we had with Carolyn, not about like, how did you think we did? Um, but (laughs) but more so, what did you think of some of the things that Carolyn brought to the table? And, um, you know, the people that I've asked this in the past are more so people, um, who are working in like, um, in like the field of of like professional 
uh, healthcare workers and stuff, but, but the policy but, stuff, but policy things, but which I'm, I'm sure that, um, uh, mom stop the harm is like pushing for a lot of policy. But, um, as someone who works with an organization like this, who's who, where a lot of the members have probably been pretty deeply affected by, um, by like you had said, drug poison, accidental drug poisoning. Um, what were your thoughts on that conversation with Carolyn Bennett? What, what did you, how did you feel, um, about some of the stuff that she brought to the table? Um, so we've had some conversations with her um, already. Mom Stop the Harm has. Um, and she did. Um, we, we had a roundtable discussion with her. And what I like about her is that she is willing to listen to um, what we have to say. And, and mm-hmm. she's very sympathetic for, um, you know, towards the families and uh, and towards the people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything that she says because, um, you know, she, I don't mean, you know, any offense to her or anything like that, but she is a politician. Um, and she, the government seems to focus on recovery and, you know, and that's not, you know, recovery is good. And and that's the goal of a lot of people. Um, but it really isn't the goal for everyone. And Mm. we need to look at, uh, uh, it's a much broader issue than just, than just putting more money into recovery. Yeah. Can, can you, can you explain what you, you mean by that? Like, it's not the goal for everyone because I think like a, a person who might not have that much um, insight into the experience of what it's like to be a person who's um, using drugs like this, they would, I, I would guess that like a lot of people would assume like recovery has to be the goal. So like what, can you explain what you, you mean by that? that? It's not always the goal. Well, I think if it's, one thing that's really important to um, understand is that people use drugs for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, the same as people use alcohol for all kinds of reasons. And so a small portion of people um, for a small portion of people, alcohol becomes a problem. Mm. And so for those people, um, you know, recovery might be, might be important. Um, but for the other uh, majority of people, we can use alcohol and there is no harm because we can go to the store, we can purchase it. We know that it's safe. We know that it's, uh, it's not going to kill us. And, you know, if the headline was saying one in 10 people that use alcohol are dying, they would pull Mm. those bottles off the shelf. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I I think that's the the piece that's maybe missing with mm -hmm. uh, the recovery based focus. I I would also, I would also uh, hypothesize a little bit in, in, in the way of saying that, um, when I hear you say that, the first thought that pops in my mind is that if 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 um, if we're too focused on going from uh, going directly from A to Z, uh, Z being being recovered, and, and like for people who, ha- especially for people who develop a problem and are uh, have an addiction to something that is negatively impacting their life in in, in various ways, there we and this was something that came up when we talked to uh like Mark Tindall about um about um uh, harm injection. harm harm yeah. reduction and safe injection sites and 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 everything like that and and decriminalization of uh, uh of these uh drugs though so that there's less incarceration and more actual you know help uh being given to people who are struggling with addiction problems is that if 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 recovery is the goal is like the, is what we're focused on then I think it seems like that that has lent itself in the past up until now to missing a lot of the things that have to happen in between, uh, get, like to get there. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, focusing too much on that end on that on that end is 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 sort of uh, not allowing us as a as a country as governments as communities to figure out a way to address the tons of steps that have to occur in between um, uh, starting starting drug use and becoming um, and, and recovering from that drug use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important thing to note because, um, you know, with the current situation that we have right now with the drug supply, we have people who, you know, they have they, people just like you and I who like to use drugs on the weekends, maybe um, they're dying from drug poisoning. Mm-hmm. And we have young mm-hmm. people who are just experimenting and, um, you know, just want to see what it feels like. And they're dying. Um, mm. You know, we have a mom in our group who um, her son died from fentanyl poisoning, poisoning the very first time he used it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's tragic the way that um, the way that people are dying. And we have to make we have to do something different than what we're already doing, because yeah. what we're doing isn't working. What's your um, what's your what's your ethos on? Because uh, language has become, especially over the last few years, language has become like incredibly important. The way that we describe things and like the connotations of certain words and the way that we string them together, the thoughts that those evoke. And overdose is the that seems to be the 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 most the most commonly used thing, the most commonly used word when talking about this subject. And when I hear you say accidental drug poisoning, it's sort of like it it sounds to me thinking about the words and what they connote is that it's. Um, like you said, like the example you just gave first time using something and like, this is a, this is an, an accident. Whereas sort of like overdose kind of implies this, like really like, um, like drug addiction, like like personal, like personal choice. Like they, like the person chose to use too much. It's, it sort of reminds me of like the, the sort of shift we've seen in the languaging surrounding like uh, suicide, right? Yes. People used to say, "Oh, they committed suicide," and, right? But now, now it's 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 uh, it's a little more um, it, died by suicide. yeah, died by suicide died is by more suicide. acceptable to yeah. to kind of put it that way. So, what's the what's the ethos there around around using using that language as opposed to a word like overdose? Yeah, it's exactly what you just said. Um, because saying that somebody died from overdose, it's putting the onus on them. Mm. Um, whereas if we say drug poisoning, we're actually putting the onus where it belongs, which is on the on the, the drug itself and the, the fact that it's unsafe and they don't know, um, they don't always know what they're taking or they don't know what's in it. Yeah. Can, um, can you, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. Um, because a lot of the, you know, as you know, there's a lot of stigma attached um, to yes. substance use and we try to, sh- we're trying to shift the language to take, um, you know, to make it people first and so, and not labeling people. So um, saying a person who uses substances rather than saying an addict mm. and, and those kinds of changes really, um, you know, to, to, to basically just to destigmatize our loved ones because they're facing stigma everywhere they go. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it's important in the way that, in the way that even though, even though a lot of people might get to the same sort of uh, conclusion or thought in terms of like using one word or the other, there's sort of like, I think there's like a, I think the most, the important part of, of using the right words is, is that it, there's like a subconscious, there's a, the, the stigma, the stigma becomes like subconscious in the words that you, the, the words that you use. Yeah. Like not necessarily like you might, you might sort of like think the same thing about a person who, uh, who like, who ends up 
having drug poisoning, um, and you might say drug poisoning instead of overdosing, or um, a person who 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 uses who uses substances rather than addict. It might you might you might ultimately arrive at the same thing, but there's a subconscious stigma that I think goes along with those certain words Absolutely. that just like perpetuates this like um, like a ju- like a judgment whether yeah. you're like whether you're very aware of it or not, yeah. which yeah. is ultimately like unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily, can you can you go into a little bit more detail on on what it is that Mom Stop the Harm is um, is actually trying to do on like a day to day basis? Sure. Um, so. We the number one thing that we do is is to advocate for um, uh, evidence based changes to drug policy, and so you know we have a lot of our advocates are on um, you know <laughs> boards with uh, Health Canada um, and with a lot of you know decision making organizations um, to try to change some of those policies. An example of of uh, one thing that one of our moms in Saskatchewan did um, was because her son. Um, passed away when he was using alone or his friends were with him, but they were afraid to call 911 mm-hmm. because they were afraid to get arrested. And so um, we now have a good Samaritan act um, so that if you call 911 and you have substances on you, you won't get arrested. Mm-hmm. And she was uh, a driving force behind having that put in place. Um, and then it, it, that's just one example. You know, there's all kinds of things that they're doing to try to change those um change those failed drug policies. Mm. And then uh, we also um, advocate for harm reduction um, and for, um, and for the families. So um, we provide support for families. We have a lot of network members who are uh, members because they need support. Um, And so we provide that to them. Plus we also, um, we have a grant from health Canada for peer led support groups. So we have grief support groups called um, Healing Hearts, and we have um, support groups called Holding Hope, which are for families um, with uh, who have someone who with living or lived experience, mm. and who might be in recovery or might be um, on the road to recovery. Mm. I'm uh, I'm I'm curious if this is on your radar. Um, one of the things that I have that has really stuck out to me in my experience. This is something that I've that I've talked about on the podcast many times, so I won't go into the the, the, all the details of it, but my, my one experience with, um, um, opioid use was after an accident where I was really injured and I was prescribed Dilaudid. And, and after I came off of the Dilaudid, I had some like really, really intense withdrawal symptoms. And I, in hindsight, I was really, really blown away by how there was no weaning protocol uh, that was offered from the pharmacists or from the doctors. But I think, I think it would probably, if, if I had to guess where it would fall, if it was introduced as a policy would probably fall with the pharmacist. Um, and I was, uh, out riding my bike the other day <laughs> and had a beer afterwards with a couple of friends. And one of them's a pharmacist. And I asked him this, I said, is there anything for pharmacists? Like, is there anything that's like suggested or something in there that pharmacists should be telling to people when they're being prescribed opioids? Um, because I was looking at those that those the leftover Dilaudid pills as I was going through these withdrawal symptoms thinking you know if I was if if my if my brain was wired a little bit differently I would never not do these again like I would I would stay on this drug for the rest of my life and I and he said no there's nothing there's nothing that pharmacists are there's no protocol there there he, he said that he thought there should be but there isn't and um and like that's the that's one thing that really sticks out to me as something that I would like to see introduced 
in terms of, I don't know if that ends up in like Health Canada policy or if it ends up as like something that a college of the whatever the the, the pharmacists um, association of Canada or um, or you know regional r- regional groups if they need to implement that that's something that I would really love to see. Mm. That's that's really good feedback. Um, and I actually I work in healthcare, so um, it's it's a question I'm going to ask because it's it's a really good point. And you know I I what I'm hearing you say too is that you understand the the pain that comes from having that, you know, physical dependency to, um, opiates and then trying to, you know, trying to stop using them. Um, mm. and, and so many people end up using opioids for, for a very long time and growing into really serious life-threatening problems through prescription, through, through prescriptions that are better obtained because they need them for pain management for, mm-hmm. you know, very legitimate pain management of injuries or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I like how you describe that as like your brain being wired differently too, because it isn't a choice. It's not like you, like you, like you sat there and you made the right choice versus somebody else making the wrong choice. It's just that like, you know, some people's um, propensity to like, like not be able to resist that urge to keep taking them because it's an overwhelming you know, feeling of like sickness or whatever, then, yeah. Then and the stigma that goes along with exactly that of like understanding that it's not just, it's not just like a fork in the road that you can, mm-hmm. that you can choose. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, I listened to a speaker recently and she um, talked about addiction as a learning disability <laughs> oh, um, interesting. because somebody in a, your exact situation um, who, you know, it, it could change the way that you think. Um, about that drug and about that substance. And then addiction happens when you pursue that drug um, despite the negative consequences. And so when that becomes your main focus, that's when addiction happens. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but lots of people can take opiates Mm -hmm. and, and stop taking opiates. Um, And I think that's the important thing to, um, to recognize. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention was if, if you um, had a history of addiction and you maybe were on methadone or, or, um, or something of that nature, but it was in your past. If you went to the emergency room in pain because you had an accident or a broken bone or something, uh, you may or may not be prescribed painkillers. And that's kind of the sad reality that goes along with the stigma that's attached to substance use. And so a lot of times people will go to the emergency room in pain, but because they have that history um, they're not prescribed anything, so they mm. end up going and buying something mm. on the street. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That happened to my my uncle a lot. He was um, he was addicted to oxycodone, and um, he had unrelated other chronic pain problems. And if he ever tried to go to the hospital or emergency room to have the train uh, the pain treated, they would just uh, assume that he's <laughs> he's like pill seeking or you know tr- trying to go there to get a high and. The amount of times that I talked to him where he was like, I'm, I'm good on the Oxycontin. I don't like, I just need, I want them to look at me. Like I want them to pay attention to me and, and tell me if there's something happening in my body that is causing this, that I can like, can they treat me? I don't need the pain. Like, don't, don't just fix the pain, fix, help me fix the problem because nobody's even looking to see what it is. Yeah. It also, I think opens up the conversation of like, of on the pharmaceutical side of you know, is there, we've been obviously for treating pain, opioids have, have 
been extremely successful over a long period of time, but with really, really uh, negative consequences as a result for, for a lot of people. And so on the research and pharmaceutical side, like, what is there? And this is the converse. This is, this is a question for a, for a, for a, for a, uh, a pharmacologist, but like, is there something, is there some work being done to try and, to try and f- get the same result from something that doesn't have the, 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 the downsides of, of opioid use? Um, so that, so that maybe, maybe that it's not, not using opioids, but that when somebody comes to the emergency room and needs pain treatment and you know that they have a history of using opioids and it being a problem in their life, is there an alternative that can have, uh, that can, that can, that can substitute in and have similar results in terms of pain management? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there absolutely are. And, you know, I think that, um, that having, it's important for the care providers who are treating the patient to listen to what they have to say. And there has to be a trust there too, because, you know, if your uncle were to go back to the emergency room, he might not tell them, mm-hmm. you know, next time he might not say, Oh, I'm, I'm on methadone or I'm on, I, I do this or I do that um, for fear of that stigma mm-hmm. and um, you know, for fear of not being treated. And it's really important for patients to be able to be open and honest with their physicians so that they can, you know, get the right treatment. Mm-hmm. Emily, I'm I'm interested. Like, how how did you end up um, working with Mom Stop the Harm? Yeah. So actually, what what you just said is the perfect segue into my story because um, uh, my oldest son, uh, he's now 28, and uh, he's in recovery. He's he's doing absolutely fantastic. Um, but when he he moved away from home when he was 19, and um, he had uh, he had ADHD. Um, he was diagnosed as a child. Um, we never medicated him, um, because it was pretty mild. Um, but when he moved away from home, uh, he, he discovered that he, he liked using stimulants, you know, and probably because that's the treatment for ADHD and it made him feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, uh, he, you know, couldn't set a limit on how much he used. And so, uh, I remember he called me, him and I have always had like a, a really open relationship, which I'm really grateful for. Um, but I remember the first time when he used crystal meth and he called me and he told me how wonderful he felt and how everything seemed clear and everything seemed, um, you know, like the world made sense. And uh, for me, it, you know, it, it was heartbreaking because yeah. I thought, oh gosh, how did, how did we get here? So mm-hmm. um so that started, he was 19 and he lived on the streets for five years um, in Alberta and in BC. <laughs> and he, he found a community on the street of people who use drugs and didn't judge him for him using drugs, mm. you know, where he, he was welcomed into that community where everybody, everywhere else, you know, it's, oh my gosh, crystal meth, you know, gross don't use that. And, and he didn't, he never felt accepted. And so on the street, he, he really found his community. Um, and I went to visit him in Calgary in March of, uh, let me think what year was that? 2014. And I, I didn't know what to, you know, I didn't know how to connect with him. I didn't know what to do. And so I just went and, and sat on the street with him and, and just sat there and, said, what, what do you, why are you here? What do you love about it? What do you, you know, tell me, just help me understand. 
And while I was there with him, I watched people walking by and I watched the way that they looked at him. And, uh, you know, I, I recognized, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, our beliefs and how we use our language, but we use it subconsciously, you know, I saw the way they were looking at him and I recognized some things about myself in their faces, you know, mm. and, uh, and it really, it opened my mind and, and it opened my eyes to, you know, I have to make a change here because it was myself, because this is my kid and mm. he's not, you know, somebody to look at with disgust and he, he's a wonderful person. Um, and so, you know, from that point on, um, both his dad and I, we would just take turns going to see him and sitting with him on the street and just hanging out and trying to connect in any way we could, because, you know, I'm in New Brunswick, he was in Alberta. Um, and so it was really the only way that we, we had to stay in touch with them. And so um, it was in 2016, um, he went to the emergency room because he had pain in his back and they turned him away. They said, you're just here looking for drugs, go away. And, you know, the interesting part that he, that he said was, you know, I can get way better drugs on the street than what they're going to yeah, give me in the emergency yeah. room. <clears throat> of course. And yeah. um, so he went twice and he was turned away both times and they never did any blood work. They never checked into anything. Um, and then uh, his legs gave out. He had, um, he had an abscess growing on his spine oh. from reusing needles. And um, yeah, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Oh, and oh my so, God. So he had surgery on his spine. He had 40, when I, I went out to, to see him in the hospital and he had 42 staples down the back of his spine Wow! and um, he had to learn how to walk again. And uh, yeah, so I brought him home um, and it was really, it was so conflicting because I had people telling me, don't let him do this. Don't let him do that. You know, he, you have to convince him to change. You have to convince him to do this. And and at the time, it was so conflicting because I wanted to let him be him, mm. you know, and uh, this voice inside of me just kept saying, you can't love him if you think you can change him. And so I just said, I'm just going to let him be who he wants to be. And I'm going to just help him get better. And um, what he wants to do is, is uh, you know, that's what we're going to do. And so he was prescribed safe supply at the time because um after his surgery, he was on um, really high doses of, of hydromorphone or dilated. And so when the, he was discharged from the hospital, and that was a whole other story, like, you know, they were going to discharge him to the street and he could barely walk. And so we ended up getting, you know, putting him on a plane and bringing him back to New Brunswick because I'm, I'm very fortunate that I work in healthcare, so I could, you know, get him admitted to the hospital here. And um, so he... When he came home, they gave him, they prescribed him Cadian, which is a, a morphine and it's a slow release morphine. And so he could take the pill once a day and that would, you know, do him for the day. But I had to pick it up at the pharmacy every day, which was, you know, it, it was a lot. It was really inconvenient. He couldn't drive. So I had to get it for him. Mm -hmm. And um, that's because like they, they just don't want you to have um, a supply of it. To, yeah, to, that's right. To right, quote unquote right. abuse, they don't want you to quote unquote abuse the supply. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. And I didn't want to be the keeper of his pills. Right. You know, I didn't want yeah. to be between him and 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 the drugs. And and him and I discussed it, and we decided this was the best way. Now, in hindsight, I might have done it differently. This was in you know 2016. I didn't really know what I was doing, and um, 
and I, they had me get um, some naloxone to have on hand just in case he did, um, you know, overdose. But in order to get naloxone at the time, I had to get a prescription for it. And the pharmacy mm. only had one kid. Interesting. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, they wanted the kid at my house and one at his dad's house. And uh, we had to wait for them to order some in, which, you know, is kind of strange to look back on now. Mm-hmm. So he wanted, he really wanted to go back to the street. That was always his goal. He's like, no, I'm not done. I, I enjoy my life on the street. I want to go back. I miss my friends. I miss, you know, I miss drugs. I miss all of this. And so I, I just want to go back to it. And so um, I, I, I took him back once he could walk. Uh, he was walking with a cane and it was, it was hard to do, but I, you know, I took him back to, he wanted to go to Hamilton cause he had friends there. So I took him and dropped him off. Um, and he went out and he used drugs and he started having pain in his back again, almost right away. And he went back to the hospital and, um, they were going to discharge him. They said, no, you're fine. I don't know what you're talking about. You're just looking for drugs. Um, and so in order to get them to listen to him, he lit a joint in the, in the waiting room and uh-huh. well, Back up. <laughs> yeah, I'd say he, wa- <laughs> he just wanted them to call me. He said, "Call my mom. She can tell you. She can explain it to you. She can, you know, she can tell you that it's real." Um, but until he did that, they wouldn't. They wouldn't call me. And so finally, they they had called the hospital administrator. She called me. Um, I explained to her. I said, "He needs an MRI. You know, he's. This is what's happened. He's just back. He's. You know, he's just taken. Stop taking Cadian, um, and he's sick. He needs help." Um, and so they admitted him, they did an MRI and that was when he decided, you know what, I think I need to stop because, Mm. um, he plays music. He's extremely talented on, um, the fiddle and the guitar. And, um, he said, I, this is, you know, this is more important to me than drugs. And I don't want to lose the ability to play music. And so he, um, he stopped injecting. And then it took a little bit of time before, um, you know, it it took him a while to give up other substances. And then he stopped taking alcohol and uh, he quit smoking and, and he's doing, he's really doing really great. Wow. Mm. Uh, What a, like, what a incredibly fascinating story. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, kudos to him for, for, you know, eventually coming to that conclusion that, you know, he was ready to, uh, to drop this life that he, that, you know, that he inevitably found a lot of, uh, community and like, and love and, and enjoyment through. Um, but, but also like massive kudos to you as a parent. Like, I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like for a lot of folks who would be, who would find themselves in a similar position to you, um, might not have the foresight to to handle the situation the way you did. It, 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 where, where do you where do you think that you where did that come from? Like where did that come from? Like having the ability to 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 you know, I I, I mean I don't know how my mom would, would react if that was me in that position, but I have a feeling that that it would be more so handled with like a. Uh, an an air of like panic and uh, and and sort of um, it it would see it would feel I, I I'm sure it would feel a lot more chaotic but it but it, but you seem to have like 
I was really surprised to hear you say like that you saw that he was he was finding community in this and you didn't want to take that away from him. And like the notion of just going to hang out with him and mm-hmm. to like spend time together, like that's that's really uh I mean, it seems like a really valuable way of handling a situation that mm-hmm. for a lot of parents would be fucking terrifying just to add to that like like i i feel like the natural reaction of a parent is like i need to do everything to protect them and pull them out of that and like hold them back from you know like this is this is dangerous or damaging to their life so like i need to like protect them so i'm gonna keep or, them or the reverse bit. of that which but, is you know what yeah, or they're lost but, but just like let them go and, the I'm, thing and that, I'm done that strikes me about it is like the amount of of like love that i hear in yeah. in your story of like just going there and being there for him mm-hmm. as he goes through that but also the thing that's i think the thing that strikes me the most is the outcome from that um mm-hmm. of him you know allowing him to come to that decision because i imagine that that's a much more powerful result to come to that conclusion on your own that you want to like making the decision as the person to want to get out of that mm. rather than trying to like having someone tell you Force that that you. is yeah. the, the thing that you well, need to do yeah and i i think you know, it's proven that forced recovery doesn't, doesn't work. You know, yeah. somebody does have to come to that conclusion on their own. And I've just always operated as a parent. It started when he was a teenager, really, um, that the most important thing for me was to have a relationship with him. Mm. And regardless of, of how we had to make that happen, you know, um, I always wanted to have a relationship with, with him on the other side. And, you know, I think my support was really good for him as far as, you know, the, his treatment in the healthcare system, because a lot of people don't have that, yeah. you know, have an advocate for them That's right. um, who can kind of speak the language, you know, and, and talk to, to healthcare uh, professionals uh, mm-hmm. in the way that they understand. Um, and so I, I think that really helped, but as far as, I, I think for me, like, you know, we always have this um, notion of tough love and, it never sat right with me. It mm. never, it never felt right. And it didn't feel like, you know, I would try, I'm not a tough person. <laughs> and so I would try to be tough or try to be, you know, um, and it, it just didn't, it didn't work because it, it's against my nature. And um, so I just couldn't do it. And mm. even though I, so it was really conflicting to be honest, because, you know, um, people would tell me, don't let him inject his drugs uh, when he's at home, because, you know, we know that it's wrong. We know that it's bad. Don't let him do it. But then he would say to me, you know, I'm going to stop it. It just, it's one little, you know, one little, um, good thing that I have to look forward to in my day is just that feeling when it goes in through an injection. Mm. So please let me do it. Mm. And, you know, Mm. there's that conflict there. And, um, so I let him do it. And despite, the advice that I got from everybody else, you know, and, and, and by allowing him to do it, he's not doing it behind my back and doing it unsafely and hiding needles and, and, and all of those things. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. 
Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. There's a, there, I, there, I, I know that there's probably people out here, even after hearing what we've said and what you've said and how you've, how you've like very eloquently described the, the idea behind um, the, the actions and the decisions that you took that will, that will still, it will scramble their brain and, and they will still feel like this person is off their rocker. And why are these people right. agreeing with her? Right. And uh, I have, I've had addiction in my close family as well. And I was really shocked to learn how so many of the natural instincts that you have to, to do, to, to, to the, the natural instincts that you have as a family member or as a parent are oftentimes the, the, the most, the most detrimental things that you could do Ooh. when dealing with somebody who has, uh, who, who has an addiction <laughs> to, uh, to a drug and, and, um, and like how conflict, how hard of a choice, how hard it is to make a decision to act in a way that is that, that kind of every part of your rational mind as a person who isn't addicted to a substance is telling you to make. And, 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 and like, <laughs> you know, the, and, and then of course people are going to tell you, don't do that. Don't do that. And, and it's, and then when you, when you talk to people who work at, uh, like recovery clinics, they give you this information and tell you, Hey, you should, you should consider approaching it in these ways, in these ways. And you're like, wow, I would have never come to that conclusion on my own. Like, I mean, you, you seem to, you seem to have incredibly. Um, but I remember hearing some of that stuff and going, wow, like I would have never thought to do it that way. But it, but when you explain it, it makes, a, it makes a lot of sense because you're, cause I'm feeling like I'm able to step into their shoes and, uh, and understand the driving forces behind the decisions that get made. And, um, and ultimately try to try to help that person in a way that doesn't seem that helpful intuitively. Mm. Well, and I think it's important for me to say too, that, you know, just because it, that worked for me and I was able to, to do that doesn't mean that that works for everybody. Yeah. And I had, I really had the benefit of, um, he's always been very respectful to me. So I, you know, I didn't have, um, I, you know, I trusted him to be, a lot of people have trust issues in their homes. I didn't have that. He was, we had space between us two, we had distance. Um, so it, it, my situation was a lot different than what mm-hmm. a, a lot of families are facing. And so um, I also always like to say, you know, I, I don't take any credit for his recovery. So I don't want you to think that like I'm a success story because I'm a great parent and I do all these wonderful things. I can't take the credit for his recovery any more than I take the blame for his, um, for his substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. And so um but I do, you know, I do facilitate a, a support group um, for people who are struggling just to try to give people hope and, um, mm. you know, to show them that it might not always be this way. And it doesn't have to be tough love. It doesn't have, they don't have to hit rock bottom. Um, mm. Although my son did, but, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the way that we've always taught or been were, taught. Were you surprised when he made the decision to, um, to seek help and, and try to, to get out of the, the situation he was in? Like in terms of the timing, was it when it happened, were you like, okay, yeah, I saw this coming. Or was it, was it sort of like a mind blowing experience of going, Oh my God, it's here. Uh, it was kind of, it was a little bit, um, 
I was kind of in awe of him, to be honest, um, because it was really hard for him. And when he started, so he was still um, taking Cadian when he made the decision to get off of of, uh, substances. And he was in the hospital as well. And he, because he was back on antibiotics because of the infection. And uh, he, they started weaning him off of the Cadian. And he called me and he said, I told them, I don't want to wean off. I just want to stop taking it because he said, it's going to just prolong. I'm going to be sick for a longer amount of time. I'd rather be really sick for a short amount of time. So he just stopped taking it cold Turkey. And um, yeah, I, I just, I couldn't believe that, you know, he was that strong, even though his body was so weak, he was that strong to be able to just say, Mm -hmm. I'm done. Yeah. I I imagine it's um, a really big, part of that challenge of, of like entering that recovery phase for your son would be, um, you know, how you sort of, you, you mentioned like how important the community was around him. Um, did he remove himself from that community or like, does he remain part of that community, but just without the drug use? Like how, how does that, how does that work? How did that work for him? No, he's still a part of the community. He actually still lived on the street for uh, another year after that. Um, and, and, and like I said, he didn't give up everything all at once. It was, mm-hmm. it was a gradual, um, thing, but in 2017, he, 2017, 2018, um, he went to the Yukon, he hitchhiked to the Yukon cause he wanted to see just, you know, wanted to see what it was like up there. And then when fall came around, he decided he wanted to stay. And that's when he, um, said, okay, I'm, if I stay in the Yukon, I can't be homeless because I won't survive the winter. Too so cold. Yeah. exactly. So then he said, well, maybe I, it's time for me to get a job and, um, you know, so I can pay rent. And, um, you know, that's when he opened a bank account and got a cell phone and, you know, did all of these things that I, I never expected him to do. Mm. And, um, and then he stayed in the Yukon for a few years and that's when he got treatments for hep C because he, he had hep C <laughs> and he was symptomatic. Mm. Um, and he said, I, I just want to feel better. So yeah. he stopped drinking alcohol and discovered that he felt a lot better, you know, yeah, yeah. eliminating alcohol. And then he got the treatments. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Emily, I, I'd love to, uh, we kind of touched on it earlier, um, but I think this is, this is one of those things that um, a lot of people probably hear of, like in, in the, in the, the, uh, you know, in the zeitgeist of, of drug use, um, but not many people maybe have like a, a really d- deep grasp on what it is. And, uh, that is being naloxone. Um, uh, you know, you were saying that back in, you know, uh, 2016 or wh- whenever it was, uh, naloxone was, was not easy to come by, which, uh, I think today that's a very, very different case. Uh, at least it, it is here in Nova Scotia. Um, can you, can you talk to us about what naloxone is and, and why naloxone is important. And the reason why I want to get into this is because, um, you know, I'll be very frank. I, I, I am a uh, recreational drug user myself and, um, and I'm very uh, adamant about testing my drugs and, uh, I have a naloxone kit at home. Um, and I know that there's probably, uh, a number of listeners who are are probably in the same boat as me, but but per, maybe perhaps don't test their drugs, or uh, maybe don't have a naloxone kit, or know you know how to use a naloxone kit. 
Um, so uh, could you could you talk to us about like the importance of naloxone, what it what it is, what it does, and like why um, why it's so important to um, to have one at you know at, on hand in case of of uh, of need of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so naloxone, it's it's uh, the the brand name is Narcan, which you know a lot mm-hmm. of people have have heard of Narcan. Um, but basically, it reverses the effects of opioids. So, um, if somebody is, uh, you know, it, the signs of an overdose, you basically have respiratory um, depression, and um, and you, you can't wake somebody up; they're not breathing. Um, and so, that naloxone, it, it's life saving. And so, you just have. I think the kit that I have, I carry a kit in my purse, um, just in case. I don't have anybody in my life that I know of that's, that's using opioids, but in this day and age, you know, there's, there's, there's people everywhere um, mm-hmm. who could be in need of it. So I keep it on me all the time. Um, but my kit has uh, three doses and what we're seeing um, with the fentanyl that's on the street is sometimes it takes three doses to um, reverse the overdose. Um, and then the other thing that we're finding because naloxone is specific for opioids. Um, if there's benzos, um, laced in there that it, it's not effective at all. And so mm. it's not reversed in the overdose. And so drug checking is really important. Uh, that's an important piece of, um, of decriminalization. And mm. it's one of the, uh, you know, there's, there's many pieces to it. It's not just, you know, when we advocate for decriminalization, it's not just the decrim itself. It's, you know, free access to naloxone. It's um, drug checking being available. You know, they have drug checking in, in BC in in uh, Ontario, mm-hmm. um, but we don't have any drug checking here. You know, aside from, you know, there's a few places that have, will have a little device um, uh, at point of care or we'll have uh, the fentanyl test strips. Mm-hmm. Um, but for someone who's, you know, planning to use fentanyl, the fentanyl test strip isn't really... Um, that helpful. It's just going to uh, come back positive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you don't know how much, right. Yeah. Or, yeah. or what it's laced with. And so, yeah. um, there's a, uh, an organization in BC called Dolph. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, Mm-mm. the drug mm-hmm. user liberation front. And so they operate a, com- a compassion club. And so, um, which is, you know, basically they take drugs, they test them for the content and then they package them and label them. So it'll say um, heroin, 75%, caffeine, 2%, you know, mm. and then people can can take this and they know exactly what's in it. They know exactly how much they're taking. Um, and if they know what their tolerance level is, they're not going to overdose on that. Um, and then they're not accidentally ingesting um, some benzos or some fentanyl or carfentanyl or, mm. you know, wh- whatever other toxic substances are in the drug mm. supply these days. That's, and, that's and, one of those things that's like, when you think about like if recovery, if, if like your eye is on recovery, it's like, well, if, if that person is going to get their hands on a, a, a drug that has something that's going to kill them in it, then recovery is not really that useful to be thinking about mm. without that step, without something right. like, without something like that, mm-hmm. that ensures that they can have the opportunity to get to recover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dead people don't recover. That's, that's right. It. Yeah. Um, can, can you explain the importance of decriminalization as well? Like, I, just, I mean, just that, before yeah. we do that, just just yeah. before we do that, um, just on the on the naloxone piece again. Right. Um, I I I just want to uh, and and uh, please step in and, and sort of um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but naloxone is not 
a replacement for medical care, right? Like naloxone is a is a is a tool to be used to get someone to keep someone alive to the point of medical care, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, that's the, my understanding, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's and and I know that uh I, I know that here in Nova Scotia, um and, and I can't speak for all provinces, but I know that here in Nova Scotia it's it's extraordinarily easy to get your hands on a naloxone kit. You can ask your local pharmacist and they will, you know, they will hand it to you. There's no no questions asked. Um mm-hmm. uh, many, many pharmacies here in Nova Scotia will just like give them out. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just want to like a little it's, PSA there. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, like an EpiPen doesn't mean that somebody with asthma right. can walk around who's allergic to peanuts can walk around and eat handfuls of peanuts and then just use the EpiPen. Like, no, that's, yeah, it's like yeah. that's not the purpose of, no, no. of it. Um, yeah, but yeah, so right. I, and, and I, you yeah, guys are ahead. in better shape with naloxone access, um, than New Brunswick. We we're okay. still, we're still working on, you know, we have a few programs, um, mm-hmm. that give them out, but. Uh, we're working on uh, getting a, a take-home program at the hospital. So if somebody's discharged from the hospital, um, mm. that they can take an naloxone kit home with them. Is that a political thing? I, I'm not really sure with 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 um, with sort of like the the, the political uh, uh, majority in New Brunswick. Is it is it a is it more conservative uh, than than Nova Scotia? Does that and and if so, does that play a role in like why these things get rolled out more slowly in a place like uh, New Brunswick? Probably, yeah. I I, I don't really. No, I, I just know that any positive changes that have come about have come from advocates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the government is always slow to change. Um, and especially with something that's stigmatized, it's, it always gets changed from the bottom up rather than the top down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're just, we have some really powerful advocates that uh, are doing some really great things here. We have uh, a new overdose prevention site that's going to be opening in St. John, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're making headway. I, I think that people can probably start to see the, the parallels between having access to a clean drug supply and decriminalization, um, have together, but can you explain why it, it's important to decriminalize these drugs first? Sure. Um, well, I don't know if first is the right approach, but, okay. um, it kind of all needs to be done As in, well, yeah. in conjunction, right. In a planned and controlled way. Um, and basically it's because when something is criminalized, you know, I mean, just go back a second, drug, drug use, uh, or substance use disorder is the only behavior related health condition that is criminalized. Mm. And so because they have this health condition, we put them in jail and we treat them like criminals. Mm. And so I think that's an important piece of it. And it's, you know, if they're, if, if a person is committing crimes, um, that's, that's a different story, but if their crime is that they're addicted to a substance, mm-hmm. um, and, and which often leads to committing crimes just for survival. Um, sure. Yeah. But if, you know, if people had access to safe supply, then that would allow them to eliminate the need for any criminal activity to support their need for that substance. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an advocate in, um, Cape Breton. Uh, she started, I don't know if you guys have heard of, uh, Julia. She started an organization in Cape Breton, um, called Cape C-A-P-E-D. Uh, and it's, oh my gosh, I'll get it wrong if I try to <laughs> say what it stands for, but she has a really powerful story where, you know, she was homeless and, um, she 
had to, you know, she had a criminal record from uh, her drug use. And then as soon as she was prescribed safe supply, now she has a job and she has a car and she has, she's still using the substance because Mm. she needs it, you know, to keep her pain at bay. Um, But she lives a really fulfilling life and she's a powerful advocate for people who use drugs. Mm. Mm. CAPE stands for uh, Cape Breton Association of People Empowering Drug Users. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's a. It's really interesting. I saw a, a video uh, not too long ago about um, it was a guy sort of like making a, a a joke of this situation where it's it's hard for people who um, have criminal records from drug use to get jobs at even places like Walmart. And the joke he was making is like, if you don't let me work here, I'm gonna fucking steal from you anyway. So like, either employ me and empower me to live like mm. a, a like like be a contributing member of society or i'm gonna be i have to resort to you know like continuing to uh be involved in criminal activity to to just to be able to live yeah yeah exactly and just point just because someone uses drugs doesn't mean they're a bad employee that's right and so you know workplaces who do random drug tests (laughs) it's you know is a good example of of how we stigmatize people and Mm it pushes them further down. If they, if they can't get employment, they can't get housing. Um, you know, what else are supposed to, are people supposed to do? Mm. Oh my God. There's places, there's companies in the States that it was like big news just a, like a month or so ago when a slew of companies announced that they weren't going to do drug testing for cannabis. And it's like, you know, the most, the like arguably the most benign, yeah. you know, <laughs> imagine substance. if they drug tested for alcohol. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Emily, uh, before we wrap, can you tell us a little about uh, a little bit about uh, the upcoming International Overdose Awareness Day? Yeah. Um, so, uh, International Overdose Awareness Day was actually started in Australia by an organization there, um, but people observe it all over the world um, because uh, you know it's a, it's a global problem. And if, I don't know if you've read. Um, Chasing the Screen by Johan Harry. It's, I highly recommend it. It gives you the history of the war on drugs, how it started in the United States, um, but it's global and its roots are um, through racism, basically. The war mm. on drugs started to keep uh, racial minorities under control. Um, and so, yeah, and we continue this 100 years later, uh, despite the fact that it's ineffective and uh, it's killing people. And so, um, this organization in Australia started it and, you know, there's purple ribbons um, that you see and, and, you know, everybody has like a little Facebook <laughs> thing on their profile for International Overdose Awareness Day, but then people hold events all over the world. And so we're holding an event here in St. John um, on August 31st, and it's going to be like a harm reduction fair. So we're going to have naloxone training. Um, we're inviting some harm reduction agencies to come. Uh, we're going to have some some of the people from the recovery centers are going to be there, um, and uh, we're hoping to have you know a really a really good event where we have um, lots of engagement from the community mm. and uh, a couple of things that we're doing as well. We, we wear purple ribbons and we have a purple chair campaign. So um, I don't know if you've heard of the empty chair uh, that they do sometimes at uh, you know Canadian Cancer Society. We'll do it at some of their events. But the empty chair signifies somebody who's not here, um, somebody who's missing from the table. And so we're painting chairs purple um, in memory of people that uh, that we've lost to the drug poisoning mm-hmm. crisis. 
Emily, uh, I want to say thank you so much for for taking time out of your schedule today to sit down with us and and uh, give us a little bit of insight into the very important work that Mom Stop the Harm is doing. Um, this has been, you know, you you have a, a really really incredible story, and and um, we're just so thankful that you that you were willing to come on here and share that with us and uh, and and give us a little bit of a, a deeper look into uh, the issues that we are currently facing here in Canada when it comes to, um, you know, mental health and addictions, uh, problems. And, uh, and I think this is a really, you know, especially coming off the heels of our conversation with Carolyn Bennett, this has been a really valuable conversation. So thank you so much for that. Not, not to mention, um, helping us rethink what it means to effectively support people who, um, are suffering from these challenges. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for asking me to come. I I really appreciate the opportunity to speak about it. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.